Do you know the song about the walls of Jericho when they all came tumbling down? This is not the case for Jericho in England. There was a class divide between Oxford University and the nearby working class area of Jericho. The bookbinder of Jericho is the new book by Pip Williams. Welcome back, Pip. It's lovely to be here, Jan. Your last book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, was set in the scriptorium at Oxford, where the Oxford Dictionary was edited and followed the life as of Esme Nicholl. But all the books from Oxford University have to be printed. So research from one book led to another. Now, Pip, explain what you mean when you talk about the dance of the bookbinders. Oh, that's such a lovely place to start this conversation because that's actually where the idea for this story started. When I was in the archives of Oxford University Press doing some last-minute research for Dictionary of Lost Words, I came across a black-and-white film made in the early 1920s about the making of a book at Oxford University Press and in that film, it goes through all of the processes from the, you know, the, the typesetting to the um, foundries uh, where they actually make the little metal type to the printing uh, and to the binding room. And the binding room was separated into the men's side and the girls' side. And so I managed to see a little bit of vision of women in the early 1920s folding pages and then one woman gathering sections of a book into her arm. And so for me, it looked like she was dancing along a gathering bench, uh, gathering those sections of a book onto her arm. And it was so graceful and it was clear she'd done it thousands of times. And I had this immediately, this question popped into my head, which was, I wonder if she ever stops to read <sighs> what she's gathering. Um, for me, it was it would have been a situation of water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink because these women were essentially at their fingertips was all of the knowledge in the English language was coming through the bindery uh, because they had to fold the words of the scholars from the university. And I was really curious about any of the women who were there who desired to learn, desired to read, desired to perhaps move on from the bindery. <laughs> Um, and whether they ever stopped to read the words. So your curiosity gave us Peggy Jones. That's right. She's one of the bookbinders and she's following her mother's role and uses her mother's bone folder. Mm. Mm. And it fits into her hand yeah. and it's a real bone. It's real bone. So a bone folder is probably the most indispensable tool in bookbinding and it's still used today for anyone who does bookbinding as a craft they would have a bone folder. A bone folder is made from cow bone. Uh, these days it's probably made from plastic. But back then it was made from cow bone. It's about the size of a tongue depressor and looks very similar, except one end is a little bit pointy. And it was used in everything from creating the creases in the folds uh, to helping with the leather work in the, in the bound book. Well, so what happens with the pages when they're not folded correctly? Well, have you ever opened a book when the pages were upside down and sideways? <laughs> Probably not because the people doing the folding have folded it in a particular way. So when a sheet comes off the printer, it's quite a large sheet and it could have anything from four to 16 pages per side. And if you looked at a printed sheet, the pages would be 
all over the place, not in order, not in any kind of obvious order. And the work of the women in the bindery was to fold it in a very particular way, uh, using various markings that were there from the printers to make sure that things lined up. And once they'd folded a sheet of paper, they have created a section and that section will have the pages in the right order. And if they're not, what does Peggy do with them? Well, if they're not, Peggy secretes it under her apron and takes it home to her narrow boat on the Oxford Canal. And her sister, that sits next door to her, is very good at origami. And if the pages aren't particularly good, they use it for toilet paper. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, so they Peggy, Peggy was in the habit of taking defect copies of books or sections or pages that had been torn perhaps in the process of folding, taking them home. And she essentially, she and her sister, Maud, they're identical twins. They live on a narrow boat on the Oxford Canal and it is like a library, like <sighs> a floating library, but full of, full of books and words that have been rejected. Well, Peggy and her sister Maud sit side by side and a quote from the book, identical in almost every way but our gaze betrayed the difference. Maud's gave the impression she was daydreaming or disinterested. Mine was suspicious and there were lines between my brow that did not exist on Maud's face. But Pip Williams, I'd like you to read from page 180 which actually further describes Peggy's sister Maud. I'd love to. And then there was Maud. My sister had a simplicity that unnerved people an honesty that made them uncomfortable. It suited most to think that her words were nothing more than sounds bouncing off the walls of an empty room. It suited them to think she was feeble-minded. Ma had known different. Maud didn't find it easy to compose an original sentence, but she chose what to repeat. She understood, I think, that most of what people said was meaningless that people spoke to fill the silence or pass the time, that despite our mastery of words and our ability to put them together in infinitely varied ways, most of us struggled to say what we really meant. Maud filtered conversation like a prism filters light. She broke it down so that each phrase could be understood as an articulation of something singular. The truth of what she said could be inconvenient. Sometimes it made life easier to misunderstand her. Yes. They live, as you say, on a canal boat where bookshelves line their cramped space. Their mother, Helen, loved reading but wanted Peggy to continue at school. Why didn't she? So Peggy, as we've just said, is an identical twin and I think people probably recognise the kind of person that Maud is and Peggy had a feeling of obligation to her sister. Um, she had a sense that she needed to stay with Maud to look after her, to look out for her. And even though she was given the opportunity to continue on into high school, which was actually an opportunity that a lot of girls a hundred years ago didn't have necessarily in England, there was an expectation that you would leave school at 12 and start working and helping to contribute to the finances of your family if you were working class. Peggy was very bright, so she was encouraged to stay on, but she felt she needed to leave school to help her mum and also to stay with Maud. Stay, look after Maud. Mm. Be responsible for Maud. Mm. When their mother died, there was not only Peggy and Maud, but their mother's good friend Tilda mm. with them. 
she's a repeat character from the Dictionary of Lost Words. Just remind us a little <laughs> bit about that Tilda. Yeah. Oh, look, Tilda is a favourite of mine. She was a character in the Dictionary of Lost Words. She was Esme's suffragette and actor friend, mm. uh, for those who've read that book. I know a lot of people really loved Tilda. She's the kind of woman that books are written about, actually. But I'm not interested necessarily in creating a story that centres Tilda. But I think she serves uh, both of these stories really well. And in this story, and it was seeded in the previous story, she has been very close friends with Helen the mother of Peggy and Maud. And um, since the death of Helen, she has stayed close to the twins. Well, she's now around 38 and a job as an actress, all she can get roles as is a nanny or uh, an old whore. That's right. So it's 1914. So what did she decide to do? So Tilda is in this unique situation where she has no family obligation Uh, She's been an independent woman for a very long time, but she's finding that both her acting career is drying up a little bit and also she's lost a little bit of faith in the WSPU, in the suffragette movement, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly because uh, of the White Feather Movement, which was a campaign where uh, suffragettes gave white feathers to men who weren't enlisting in the war. Now, you said there that there was a pact between the Prime Minister and Emily Pankhurst for her to downplay or support the war and he would introduce the vote? Yeah, well, it wasn't quite so clear-cut as that. It wasn't the Prime Minister who devised the White Feather campaign. It was another minister, and I can't remember oh. their name. Uh, but they did essentially create a, an agreement, really, with the WSPU that they would cut back on their suffragette activities mm. around suffrage in order to support the war. And so the WSPU were very supportive of the war. Other groups that were part of the suffrage movement were not very supportive of the war. And and one of the ways they supported the war was to essentially institute this white feather campaign. Yeah, so they could learn more and more. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't a direct swap for you support us and we'll support you, but it did help. And Tilda went into a completely different occupation. Yeah, so Tilda was still obviously fighting for the right to vote, but she she just didn't agree necessarily with this particular turn of events. And she decided that what she would do to help the war effort was become a VAD, uh, which really stands for Voluntary Aid Detachment, so become a volunteer nurse. And eventually she ends up in France at a place called ETAP, which had the largest military base. Mm. Even then, there was a bit of a class divide, even in nursing. Absolutely, because they were volunteers. And to be a volunteer, you had to be a person of means. And so most of the VADs during World War One were actually middle and upper class women. They were women who didn't have a family to feed and who didn't need to keep working to earn an income. And they did need some of the education that Tilda could offer them. Uh, Yes, that's right. So Tilda was sort of unusual because she, in fact, was a working class woman, but she obviously was a very independent woman. And she finds herself with all of these women who she refers to as debutantes. (laughs) Um, And essentially, they really were. You know, they were very young women. They'd lived very privileged lives uh, where they'd had servants essentially doing things for them. Mm -hmm. And so Tilda finds herself in this situation where she's kind of like an aunt and, you know, 
know, helping helping these women to survive on their own with uh, less less <laughs> less servants. And, well, she's yeah. a regular letter writer back yes. to Peggy and yeah. Maud, and one of the letters we she tells Peggy where to find the French letters she stashed on the canal boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tilda Tilda is a very practical woman <laughs> and very enlightened. She also tells about the brutality of the war. But she also befriends an Australian artist over there. Mm. You know, I reckon there might be another story in her. Isa Ray, Isabel Ray, is a real woman. And I came across her just in my research around World War One. But I came across her paintings and her drawings, actually, because I was really interested in writing this in doing the research for this. Women have kind of been left out of the history books. And so one of the places I turn to to find out about women's experiences of this time and this place is women's art. So it could be their poetry, it could be novels that were written at that time, um, memoirs. So Testament of Youth by Vera Britton was one of those memoirs that was really important to my understanding of life at this time. The other thing I looked at was art. And there are a few different women artists at that time. But Iso Ray was an Australian artist who had been living at Etap in France because it was an artist's colony. And there were artists from around the world living there before before World War I. But when war broke out, almost all of them left for home. But she couldn't because her mother was living there with her and her sister. And her mother was very frail and couldn't come back to Australia. So they stayed. And she actually applied to become a war artist for the Australian Defence Force. And they denied her that because she was a woman. And... And so she became a VAD. She worked at the army base. She befriends my fictional character, Tilda. But she did continue painting. And we, the War Memorial now holds her collection in their archives. And they are exquisite. And they do give a completely different understanding of World War I at that time from a woman's perspective. A little bit of research goes a long it way. It really does. It really does. <laughs> Jack from the canal boat next door, trains as a sniper under his boss from the printing works, Gareth. Gareth. And if you read the Dictionary of Lost Words, you know what happens to him. But it's Tilda as a nurse to German officers that gives a different feel to the war too. Mm. I thought it was really important, I mean, especially looking back. What I'm interested in when I'm writing my stories is the humanity of the time and the place and I was very interested in what it might have been like to nurse the enemy Mm. and so Tilda gives us an idea of what that might have been like and I have to acknowledge that I got that from Vera Britton's Testament of Youth because Vera Britton uh, was actually a VAD at ETAP and she worked in the German ward so what I know of that comes from her memoir. But I was also interested, so there's Tilda's experience at the front, but at the same time, Oxford University Press was debating whether or not to do a reprint of the Oxford book of German verse. And so, you know, there there are these echoes in the stories of different characters within this book. That's one of them. And I was interested in how these things are experienced and resolved. Oxford. Town and gown. Peggy is intelligent and ambitious and thought she would never have a life beyond Jericho and Maud. And on the way to and from the bookbinding, she passes Somerville 
college. What does she dream of? Yeah, so it's a very interesting, you know, the metaphors are everywhere <laughs> when you're walking around Oxford. I, I really don't need to make them up. <laughs> so Oxford University Press is in the town of Jericho, which is on one side of Walton Street. And Somerville College is immediately opposite the press on the other side of Walton Street, which is Oxford. And so Walton Street is the division between Jericho, a very, very working class suburb at that time of history, and Somerville, which is part of Oxford and the university establishment. And so every time Peggy walks into work, she glances over at Somerville College College and dreams of having, you know, being in one of the rooms overlooking Walton Street and reading the books. I should say we have a little map at the front, which is very good, very good. Oh, the right, you get the feel of where they go. And then it's Gwen, a Somerville College girl. How does she meet Peggy? Well, that's one of the things about World War One. It really changed the normal order of things. So prior to World War One, there would have been no reason for Peggy and Gwen to p- cross paths unless it was a servant master situation. But once the war started, the women who were left at home were basically asked to step up to do the jobs of men and to volunteer their time to help in hospitals and in other ways. And women from all walks of life did this. And so Peggy and Gwen meet when they both volunteer to to read and write letters for soldiers who are convalescing in the hospitals that popped up all over Oxford. Peggy's given the job of writing for the Invisible Man. Who's he? So the Invisible Man, and there would have been many, many invisible men uh, during World War I. It was a brutal, awful, violent war. And the injuries incurred by soldiers were um, unbelievable. And so there were invisible men all over the place. And these are men who were bandaged from head to toe often, but often their faces were really heavily bandaged because there were a lot of facial injuries during World War One, And Bastian is actually a Belgian soldier who has been transported to Oxford and is receiving treatment in Oxford. And Peggy is asked to sit by his bedside after a slight misunderstanding that she can speak French. <laughs> Her French isn't actually that good. But Gwen, <laughs> Gwen's propagated this, <laughs> this myth. And so she meets Bastian by sitting by his bedside and she calls him the invisible man because he is covered in bandages and she can't see who he is beneath them. And she sits there while he has his terrors, while you know, he, he's, he's so upset and... Eventually, he is unbandaged and there is a wonder of how to kiss a mangled face. But a romance blossoms into something more. Now, I thought you wrote the sex scene so sensitively. I was brought to tears in the canal boat. And Esme and Gareth had good sex too, didn't they? (laughs) I'd like to think so. (laughs) Very nicely written. yes. It's subtle. It's subtle. I sort of feel with sex scenes, um, like actually any really emotional scene, the more you leave out, the more you allow the reader to fill it in with the things that matter most to them. And so I love that you think that they're beautiful sex scenes because I imagine what you've done is actually <laughs> fill in the gaps. <laughs> and so they're... 
And that's what I'm hoping people do. If I don't say too much and I just give a hint of something, we're pretty good at filling in the gaps <laughs> in a way that suits us best. Well, it wasn't just good at sex in the book. Uh, it says a lot about a- you, actually, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> you must have good sex. I'm blushing. She's blushing. It's radio. <laughs> um, now, Bastian also was able to take his own nightmares and reduce his fears. And with that, he was able to help Peggy deal with her own mother's death. Mm. And that was a beautiful, different Mm. way that he did that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, it was really important, again, to tread lightly on these things because everybody's experience is slightly different. But I was really interested not only in exploring the experience of women who stay home, and who don't necessarily have someone at the front that they're waiting for. And so in Peggy's case, she doesn't have a fiancé or a father or a brother at the front. She does have friends at the front. So it's not about her waiting for somebody to come home, waiting for that telegram. But I wanted to explore women's experiences of the war in that way, but I also wanted to explore the experience of people who flee war. Now, Bastian didn't flee so much. He was an injured soldier, Uh, But there are other refugees in this story from Belgium. And I wanted to explore what happens when you have had the trauma of war. And, of course, death and death of, of friends, death of strangers, seeing death everywhere affects people in various ways. And in in, term, in Bastion's case, you know, his dead were with him all the time and he was constantly trying to find a way to put them to rest. So visiting a cemetery. Yes. And oh. so his place of calm was actually a cemetery, which is full of dead, but it's full of dead at rest. Mm. And that was important to him. And one of the things he does is he looks for dead who are buried and have graves who might take on the burden of of one of the many people who he sees every night that, in his nightmares. Where he came from mm. in Belgium, mm. it really was a horrible, horrible war crime scene yeah. where um, one in ten civilians were executed and mm. the library burnt down. Yeah, which, so we're talking about Louvain. Yeah. Um, and it was a university town, much like, like Oxford. Oxford. And it had a beautiful university, the Catholic University there. And that university had a really uh, significant library. And when the Germans came through, remembering the Germans came through neutral Belgium, they burnt that place to the ground, an act of destruction that sometimes happens in war. They basically want to wipe out cultural significance. Uh, And then they executed men and boys randomly. Uh, look, this is a big book. There's the work dynamics where gender and class have restrictions in each part of society. If, even in the bookbinding department, there's Miss Hogg, the freckly frog, the supervisor, <laughs> who's happy to tell one of Peggy's disappointment. I'm going to ask Pip Williams to read. I was the girl caught reading when she should have been folding, who wanted to be gown instead of town. If I'd passed... They would have wished me well, but I'd failed. I'd thought myself better when I wasn't. They wouldn't forgive me for that, and they'd only forget when I had. Few were as straightforward as Mrs Hogg, but more than one asked if I was there to stay, and I saw the smirk play on their lips. 
let that be a lesson to you. They were saying, you're no better than the rest of us. Oh, yeah. Mm, so, <laughs> class divide even, you know, yeah. just in. And, of course, the gender divide, there, there was the men's and the girls. No, That's Mrs. right, Mrs. the men's Hogg side and the girls' side. was not a girl. <laughs> no, no, most of the women on the girls' side were women. Yes. But there were some girls, but there were some boys on the men's side as well. And, it, and again, it's language. This was a time when women weren't considered valuable enough to vote. So it mm. made sense that they were infantilised in the workplace. Through this book, we get this whole feeling about women. And uh, Peggy's mother said that a woman's place to inspire stories, not to write them. Mm. But here we have Peggy and the Mm. Trojan War story, what am I saying? And um, Peggy's mother always said, look, you know, don't think about the Trojan War like that. Think about how Helen got it done. Yes, that's right. Was it really Helen's fault? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. The Dictionary of Lost Words didn't have a book launch really it was just got there through word of mouth and then it started winning the awards Mm. it became a stage play to become a tv series and a book concerto oh whatever is that i know it's incredible it's incredible marianne budos from um canberra he's a composer and he's creating a book concerto i think he'll have a number of instruments Esme plays a harp and it's going to be beautiful. Oh, right. Pip Williams returns to Oxford after the Dictionary of Lost Words. It is 1914 and through the eyes of Peggy Jones, we see the impact of World War I, war refugees and the Spanish flu in class and gender, town or gown, and on her own ambitions and desires or restrictions in the bookbinder of Jericho. Thank you so much, Pip Williams. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I could tell you were very excited when you came in about this interview, Jan, and during the course of this uh, interview, I discovered why. It's all the sex scenes. <laughs> oh, it's not. No, brilliant and book. Yeah. And just congrats to Affirm Press too for picking up both books and this will be the biggest print run for Affirm Press. So well, well done. Magic. Why didn't Oxford? take it up if it's set in Oxford. I don't know that anyone could have done a better job than a firm press, actually, yeah, so I'm go. pretty happy that they've got it. <laughs> yeah. And there's all sorts of things about uncut pages that you could get and mm. with the folding and such like. Yeah, fascinating. To quote again, some books and storytelling can be very bad, but feels like bad poetry in a leather binding, these bad books. This is not one of them. Certainly worth all the time spent reading it and getting back into Oxford. Thanks again. Pip. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, David. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Pip.